Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Thanks for braving the impending storm on this March 12, 2014. Uh, reminder, next week we will continue our uh, CHAD Pediatric Gastroenterology Mini Fellowship Series. Dr. Mark Hoffley will speak to us about lipids, metabolic syndrome, and obesity. And following that, we'll get back to our graduating residence with Sam House on March 26th. Looking ready in the audience there. Um, I want to congratulate and thank George Little for a highly successful uh, Dartmouth Pediatric Conference this past weekend at Mount Washington. Record turnout. Uh, we'll, we'll give you credit even for the snow and the ski conditions as well, but really a great, uh, a great session. And, and really thank George also for having led the program for the past six years, taking over for his good friend Judy Frank and, uh, and Carol Stashwick before that. So. So uh, George isn't going off into the pasture just yet, but he, he's slowly but surely bequeathing more and more of his responsibilities, and that's uh, one of them that he's gonna, I'm gonna try to take on from, from his hand. The torch is passed from one to the next, and we'll do it again next year. So thank you, George. Um, I wanna congratulate, thank Kim Gifford, who's sitting in front of me. I got a letter, I get these letters, it's great. I tell you about these every week if I can who got a very big thank you from Mark Bertrand for her important service on the Internal Review Committee for the General Surgery Residency Program and her GME work. Kim's also therefore been asked to chair a, a strategic planning group for graduate medical education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So thank you for your uh, service to Dartmouth-Hitchcock and GME, Kim. So I can't defer any longer, and you're on. I, I get the pleasure of welcoming, one second, Erin Fuller uh, to the podium today for her Grand Rounds. Erin is a native of Canada, Toronto, Ontario, and, and we have a fair representation of that in our residency and in, in the audience today uh, in our program. Erin um, uh, received her bio, uh, bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Michigan, and then also a master's degree as well in that department at the University of Michigan. Uh, University of Toledo College of Medicine and subsequently joined us for her internship and residency here at Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. And Erin is a budding cardiologist. And um, do I, can I, do we have news on sharing where that might be or? No, I have another interview. Okay, so a budding <laughs> cardiologist who's yet to uh, uh, determine where she's going to end up, but uh, uh, I'm sure it'll be exciting. And she has a a really um, ambitious, I, I'm really impressed with our residents are trying to tackle today. So she's going to inform us about healthcare reform in pediatrics. Welcome, Erin. Make sure the switch is turned down on the body pack. Make sure the switch is turned down on the body pack that you clip to either your belt. It's on, right? You just have to speak up a little. You just have to talk loud. That's not happening. Okay. How about now? Good. All right. So, um, it is an ambitious topic. Um, hopefully, you know, it'll be more understandable if you can hear me. Um, and hopefully it's, you know, within the scope of the next hour. Um, but, um, why don't we get started? 
because we have a lot of stuff to cover. So um, I have no financial interests in Aaron, can you anything speak up this. a little? How about now? Nope. No. Yeah, let's just, just press the gooseneck microphone on. Let's forget about that other microphone. Okay. How about now? Much better. Much better? Okay, good. So um, I have no financial interest to disclose. Um, and uh, I wanted to start um, because we are here at DHMC and Pediatrics by telling you my goals um, because that's important <laughs> to us. Um, so uh, what we're going to cover today is um, basically uh, the problems with our current healthcare system that kind of led up to uh, the development of um, the most recent healthcare reform bills um, and then talk about uh, the provisions within the Affordable Care Act that are relevant to the pediatric population. And then finally, um, talk about some of the shortcomings of um, the ACA and some things that you can do to, to help um, with future changes. Um, and then at the end, we'll do some audience response system feedback. So I wanted to start with a couple of disclaimers. Um, firstly, this is a very big topic. Um, and I chose it not because I was already an expert, but because it was something that um, I, you know, I thought it would be a great opportunity to um, spend some time really learning about something that was really relevant to us and was really complex and something that um, I'd had an interest in previously. Um, but it is um, kind of a behemoth of a topic, and so we are not going to address everything. It's you know an 800 some odd page bill. Um, and if we were to talk about everything contained within the bill and everything that came before it and all of the potential implications and what we could do um, to help change it, then um, we would be here until we all qualify for Medicare. And so I don't really want to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this is not an exhaustive review of this topic, um, but I am going to give you all of the key points um, that the real experts um, think are important and are relevant to us and to the care of our patients, um, and talk about um, some of the tools and resources that you can use to um, get involved and to help contribute to the changes um, as they develop over the next couple of years. Um, so, um, we're not going to cover everything, but I'm going to present to you the, the most evidence-based, data-driven um, information that I was able to, to track down. Um, and I'm going to avoid as much as possible discussing my opinions, um, not because I don't have any, but because that's not what you're here for. Um, so um, now you know where I've started. So um, why don't we find out where you are starting from? Um, so. Everybody grab your clicker um, and um, choose uh, any of the statements from this list that you think might be true. Um, will the ACA establish a government panel to make decisions about end-of-life care? Will they give states the option of expanding Medicaid to cover more low-income adults and children? Um, will it allow undocumented immigrants to receive aid to purchase insurance? Will it cut a few benefits from the traditional Medicare program? 
will it create a new government-run health insurance plan to be offered alongside the private options in the exchanges? Yeah, we're still getting quite a few. Okay, looks like we slowed down. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going to torture you and not give you all of the answers now, um, but I promise by the end of the talk that they will all become clear. Um, and we'll review the questions again. So, um, what is wrong with our current healthcare system? Um, there are kind of two broad general categories. Um, firstly, uh, Costs are astronomical and, um, and not really sustainable. And secondly, um, our health health outcomes are still arguably worse than any other developed nation. And um, the fact that we're spending more and we're still getting poorer outcomes um, is uh, it's it's not a great reflection of our system. Um, but let's look at the problems a little bit more closely. So um, this chart is a little bit blurry, but uh, the important thing is that the orange bars are all 16 other developed nations around um, around the uh, world, and the blue bar at the bottom is the United States. Um, this graph rec um, represents the per capita health expenditures um, of all of these nations, um, or at least the nations that spend more than $2,500 per person. So there are other developed nations, they just didn't make the chart because they spend less than, than a third of what we spend. Um, the point is that uh, there are a lot of countries um, that spend significantly less on healthcare than we do, and, um, and we, are, we are an outlier. Um, so we spend more than other nations, and we're also continuously increasing the amount of money that we spend per capita. Um, so this graph is a, um, is a graph that shows just the US um, healthcare expenditures um, per person uh, over the course of the last 50 or so years. Um, so uh, you can see this line right here just indicates when the graph changes from um, a point every 10 years to a point every um, every calendar year. Uh, and we've continued to increase um, since the 60s. Um, so not only are we increasing the amount of money we're spending per capita, but we're also increasing the proportion of our GDP that we allot to healthcare. So our healthcare expenditures are increasing faster than our GDP is increasing, which is um, another concerning trend. Um, this graph shows the cumulative increase in um, healthcare premiums, um, uh, workers' contributions, workers' earnings, and the rate of inflation. Um, insurance premiums have consistently outpaced um, inflation and the growth in workers' earnings um, for uh, several decades. Um, this is the just the growth from the last 10 years. Um, so workers are earning more um, in kind of comparable with the rate of inflation, um, but workers' contributions and the um, uh, premiums for health insurance um, are are increasing at a much faster rate. Um, so in case this makes you concerned that um, employers are uh, kind of taking it out on all the employees and, and forcing them to, to cover all the increases. Um, this graph shows the average worker and employer contributions for um, family plans. Um, and we've got the employee annual contributions um, in the orange and the employer contributions in the blue. Um, and over the course of the last 10 years, um, 10 or 15 years or so, workers 
are paying more for their coverage, but employees are paying even more than workers are paying. Um, and their increases are um, uh, proportionally larger. Um, so uh, unfortunately, um, everybody's costs are going up, um, but the employees' contributions um, are not even done after this. Um, and because of that, um, a lot of people report that they limit their medical care because of the cost um, required of them. So this graph shows um, a number of uh, reasons that people report um, limiting their health care. Um, and at the bottom, this orange bar here shows that 50% of the population um, has um, been affirmative that they have limited their own medical care because of the cost. Um, we're the only developed nation that is afraid of our medical bills. Um, and uh, there are a couple of concerning um, points on this chart, just that you know, it seems that about a third of the population is um, at least decreasing, if not actively skipping their, their um, uh, appointments um, with physicians uh, because they can't afford them. Um, and patients are getting less than the treatment or not getting the treatment that is recommended for them um, because they can't afford it. Um, so we're pouring a lot of money into healthcare and um, uh, we should be healthier than, than everyone else in the world. Um, but the World Health Organization did an assessment to try to find out um, you know, exactly uh, how countries were doing. Um, they uh, did an assessment based on five indicators. Um, cost distribution, um, which is the, the level of um, cost that's uh, relative to um, economic status. So how much um, all ends of the economic spectrum are paying for their cost and whether or not it's evenly distributed. Um, they looked at overall health, um, so disparities in health within the population, um, distribution of the um, uh, health inequities, so whether or not certain ends of the financial spectrum are healthier or less healthy than others, and um, responsiveness. So um, responsiveness is um, a health system's um, uh, likelihood of having high um, uh, patient satisfaction. Um, so the ability of patients to um, get choose the provider they want and to um, get access to care in a timely fashion. Um, so um, responsiveness was 25% uh, of their assessment um, and 50% of that was uh, distribution of responsiveness. Um, so whether or not your economic status affected your ability to access care. Um, and then finally, uh, overall responsiveness of the system. Um, so the US was number one in um, overall responsiveness. Um, and um, in this assessment, the only other category in which they were, we were first was um, expenditures per capita. Um, so this is the list of the first 15 countries um, in the assessment um, based on those parameters um, from the previous slide. Um, and uh, here we are um, at 37, which is not great, um, especially considering how much money we spend. Um, this is data actually from the year 2000. Um, they were scheduled to do another repeat of this assessment in 2010, um, but there was such an uproar after the release of the year 2000 results that the WHO refused to do it again. Um, <laughs> and, 
so this is the most recent information that we have. Um, so um, that seems pretty bad. Why are we 37th? Um, we're a developed nation. We're spending more money than anybody else in the world. And um, you know, I, we're working pretty hard. Um, so it's not for lack of effort. Um, but uh, we didn't have good information about why that might be the case. So um, in order to find out um, a little bit more about um, America's health relative to the um, other nations that we kind of consider to be our peers, um, the National Research Council and Institute of Medicine looked at the same information that the um, WHO gathered um, from 17 developed nations, um, so the nations with the highest GDP, and um, tried to find out exactly um, what might be a root cause or, or something systemic that we could work on. And um, what they found was also a little disturbing. So um, this is a summary from that study um, of the data of uh, deaths from all causes. Um, and probably this is also a little bit too small to see, but um, the details also aren't important. Um, so what we have is uh, 16 other developed nations in purple and the US in red or pink or whatever you want to call that. Um, this shows the number of deaths per 100,000 people. Um, this is the data from 2008. Um, the uh, US data um, has, we have shorter life expectancies and higher rates of death from all causes than um, almost other, all other developed nations. We're 16th out of 17 for female life expectancy and 17 out of 17 for um, male life expectancy. Um, and the mortality gap between um, our life expectancy and that of other developed nations has been growing for the last three decades. Um, it affects all age groups, um, both sexes, all races, all incomes, um, and is observed in all um, measured areas of potential causes of mortality. Um, American men for the last three decades have um, had the lowest or near lowest likelihood of surviving to the age of 50 um, of any developed nation, and that's been consistent um, for the last couple of decades. Um, so um, these are different colors, but the same idea. Um, uh, other developed nations in gray and us down at the bottom in red. This is from the same study. Um, the U.S. has 41 births for every 1,000 girls aged 15 to 19. The next closest country is the U.K., which has 25% um, lower um, rates. Our adolescents are sexually active at a younger age. They have more partners. Um, they're more likely to engage in risky activities um, than adolescents from other nations. Um, we also don't do well in terms of the maternal death rate, um, which is what this graph is showing. Um, again, death rate per 100,000 um, and from 2008. Um, so uh, the trend is, is also kind of d disturbing in this area. Um, we fare worse than other developed nations in a multitude of different areas, the most dramatic of which is um, adverse birth outcomes injuries, accidents, homicides, um, adolescent pregnancy and STIs, HIV and AIDS, drug-related mortality, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, <laughs> chronic lung disease, and disability. Um, the infant mortality right here um, is one and a half more deaths per thousand live births than the next closest nation. Um, we also have more birth, low birth weight babies and um, more mo mothers who receive no or inadequate prenatal <coughs> care. 
we own more firearms than any other developed nations and have higher rates of violent deaths. We are less likely to smoke and may drink less, which is good. But we also are less likely to use seatbelts and have more traffic accidents involving alcohol, which is bad. Um, we consume more calories, we abuse more illicit and prescription drugs, um, but we do have some areas where we are better. Um, we do average or slightly better than average in malignancies, GI disorders, respiratory infections, and oral diseases. We're not average, but we're close to average in um, deaths secondary to accidental falls and um, sensory organ diseases. So we do have our strengths, um, <laughs> so that's good. Um, we actually ranked sixth in um, end-of-life care in 2010 um, for quality of death, um, so we're doing that right. Um, but, um, yeah, so the study um, was kind of uh, a little bit depressing, but mostly frustrating because um, the, uh, um, the panelists were looking for some kind of root cause that we could, like, you know, pin down and um, direct our efforts at, and they weren't able to find anything. Um, even the fit people who don't smoke and exercise regularly and seem to be doing everything right are still dying faster and younger than people from other developed nations. Um, so they didn't come up with anything great. But um, I read an interview with one of the panelists um, who made the point that um, because of uh, rising obesity rates in other developed nations and the fact that their rates of smoking are higher um, in the future, that will probably keep us out of the bottom. <laughs> And so I hope that that was a joke, um, but um, if not, it was just a really remarkable missing of the point. Um, so um, the point is, we're not doing great, and it's costing us a fortune. And um, as scary as it is to everyone, um, it's becoming increasingly clear that we need to reform something. Um, and the um, Affordable Care Act was passed as an attempt to start to try to address some of these issues. So. Um, what exactly is the Affordable Care Act? Um, it is divided into a series of smaller bills and acts, um, each of which address um, different areas of need. Um, there are lots of ways to break up the, um, the whole reform bill, um, and somewhat arbitrarily I've divided them into these six categories, which mostly encompasses a lot of their broad co um, concepts, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, so. Um, the first category is expanded access. Um, and uh, We'll talk about all of these more in detail as we go. Um, emphasis, uh, an emphasis on prevention, workforce development, um, improving quality and efficiency, um, curbing rising costs, and increasing consumer protections. Um, so let's start with um, expanding access. Um, so the first and maybe most recognizable um, uh, aspect of uh, access expansion is the personal mandate. Um, and this is um, meant to I guess, prevent cost shifting. Um, so we provide care to, to everyone um, in need, um, but uh, the costs for uninsured patients are um, cost shifted uh, onto insurers with, um, or patients with uh, insurance with some kind of coverage. Um, and so the personal mandate was meant to, to decrease some of those um, I guess, indirect costs. Um, the mandate implies that it's a required thing, and um, so there is a penalty for not 
complying. Um, the penalties increase over time um, for this year um, because it's the first year for the mandate. The penalty is um, $95 or 1% of your income, um, whatever is lower. Um, for next year, the penalty will increase to 350 or 2% of your income. And the year after that, it will be uh, $750 or 2.5% of your income. And um, that will um, kind of stay at that rate over time. The penalty for children um, is uh, half of the adult penalty. Um, there are some exemptions. Um, there are religious exemptions. Um, there are um, exemptions for members of um, Native American tribes. Um, people who get a hardship waiver and um, incarcerated individuals uh, and anyone who um, is not covered for three months or less. Um, so there, there are exemptions um, and there are penalties. The penalties are a little bit difficult to collect. Um, at this point, the system is set up so that the collection happens at the point of um, uh, tax refunds or tax rebates. Um, so if your tax rebate is less than $95, um, we don't really have any good way of collecting that from you. Um, and uh, at $95, it may not be as relevant, but as the penalties kind of increase in, in subsequent years, um, if your tax rebate is less than $750 two years from now, um, and you know it's possible that that could happen, um, then we don't have a good way of collecting that at this point. Um, so that's a, a potential difficulty in the future that we'll have to address. Um, another um, important category are the uh, healthcare exchanges, um, which are new. Um, they are um, operated by the states um, who can choose to operate it on their own um, or operate it in partnership with the federal government or operate or have the federal government operate in, um, in exchange for them. Um, so there are a number of ways that they can they can um, choose to, to operate the exchange. Um, they are offering several levels of plans um, in a way that is um, uh, standardized so that you can compare easily across plans. Um, there are several levels, um, starting with uh, the platinum level, um, which uh, in which insurers cover 90% of the costs um, in aggregate. Uh, the silver, or the, I'm sorry, the gold level, where insurers cover 80%, silver where they cover 70, and um, bronze where they cover 60%. There is also a catastrophic coverage um, level, which only applies to people under 30 um, who have a, a certain list of um, of qualifications. Um, there is Medicaid expansion, which has been big in the news recently. Um, this uh, program increases coverage for all people under 65, expanding their access to Medicaid up to 138% of the federal poverty level. Um, that is about $16,000 for an individual and about $33,000 for a family of four um, this year. Um, so um, this is where it kind of starts to get a little bit hairy. Um, so the federal coverage for, um, for patients that are in Medicaid right now is going to be divided between um, the responsibility of the states and the responsibility of the federal government. So um, if a state had a previous Medicaid level set at 80% of the federal poverty level and they are expanding to 138%, then the federal government will cover 
everyone in a income range between 80% and 138% of the federal poverty level. And the states will continue to cover all of the people that they would have previously. Um, so the federal government is covering 100% of the costs of that expanded population. Um, if the state chooses not to expand Medicaid, um, then the federal government will continue to offer um, tax credits in excess of people who are above 138% of the federal poverty level. Um, but they won't extend those tax credits down to the, the state's um, prior level of Medicaid um, qualification. Um, so that's where the, the gap in coverage um, potentially develops for, for states who are choosing not to expand their Medicaid programs. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, uh, also relevant to us, um, starting this year, um, well, that's not true, starting in 2010, um, Medicaid coverage for young adults in the foster care program is, is extending up to age 26. Um, and uh, that's um, really important for the foster care population because um, being uh, in foster care, their parents can, are, are the government. And so allowing them to continue on that plan until they're 26 um, is important. Um, we're also extending um, the uh, acceptance of young adult insurance on their parents' plans until age 26 as well. Um, and that has been um, a major improvement in the coverage of that population. Um, a little more than half of, of um, children who are in that age range are on private insurance. Um, the rates of Medicaid um, coverage decrease over time from birth to age 26. And the rates of private insurance increase over time. So that population is um, the, most, the most relevant for um, extension of private insurance. Um, we've covered a previously uninsured 3 million um, young people um, since the, the plan was extended in 2012. Um, and there are now 7.88 million um, young people who are on their parents' insurance um, at this time that wouldn't otherwise be um, be able to uh, be covered. Um, this is also a, um, an act that is important to the um, pediatric cardiology population um, because we are having um, we're having more uh, young people that are transitioning to adult care. And um, now that uh, there are interventions that are keeping these children alive into adulthood, um, the cardiology field is having to create um, a new field to care for this population of, of children becoming adults. And um, it's been, uh, there have been significant gaps in the um, access to care for those patients. Um, that combined with the fact that um, they're uh, they're ill and they um, were having trouble with pre-existing um, condition restrictions um, has been uh, difficult for covering all of those patients. So allowing them to stay on their parents' plan until they're 26 um, will help decrease the um, the gaps that they're falling into or that they've fallen into in the past. Hmm. All right. So. Um, the bill also um, emphasizes prevention and wellness um, uh, categorically. Um, so they require all coverage of preventative services without cost sharing. Um, so uh, all people um, who have some form of coverage um, will be um, 
will have access to preventative care that um, won't include uh, co-pays and will be exempt from their deductibles. Um, they are covering all of Bright Futures, um, which is important. Um, they have new compre comprehensive preventative coverage for um, oral and vision services. Um, and in 2011, they um, eliminated cost sharing for all proven preventative services. Um, there are tobacco cessation programs for pregnant women, and um, there's also increased um, compensation for primary care um, services. Um, there is an $8.3 billion fund to bring parity to the Medicaid, Medicare um, reimbursement uh, system to allow um, increased reimbursements um, for primary care services. Um, and that applies to not just um, general pediatrics, but also to um, subspecialty care within pediatrics, um, in addition to um, general care, but not subspecialty care for internal medicine and family practice physicians. Um, it also, uh, well, oh yeah, so public education for oral health um, and a new um, home visit initiative um, for children and families in at-risk communities. Um, it provides funding for a um, Medicaid medical home project, which will run in parallel with that, um, along with a multitude of other um, uh, funds that are directed at special populations. Um, so there is a <coughs> emergency medical services for children program and a childhood obesity demonstration project and um, a very long list um, of uh, directed um, bills towards certain populations. Um, the bill also um, promotes health workforce development. Um, so it uh, has some reforms towards graduate medical education um, and a um, loan forgiveness program uh, that um, provides $35,000 a year in loan forgiveness for people in primary care or in subspecialty shortage areas. Um, and uh, also funds development of um, team management for chronic diseases. Um, in support of the kind of medical home model. Um, so it trains medical health workers and um, nurse practitioners and PAs um, and has special funding for RN training. Um, there's a big focus on improving quality and efficiency. Um, so it uh, encourages um, health homes in addition to medical homes um, and uh, increases data reporting mechanisms. Um, there are uh, databases that are being developed um, to look at disparities for ethnicity and geography, gender and disability status and language. Um, there are incentives under the um, Best Pharmaceutical Act um, for children, which will study biologics in children so that we have more evidence and we're using less things um, off-label. Uh, there is the economic substance assessment. Um, economic substance is a um, a doctrine in tax law that um, says that uh, a transaction must have an economic purpose and not be done solely for the purpose of decreasing tax liability, um, which is also important. Um, and then um, funding comparative research in addition to the pharmaceutical industry um, for a variety of medical treatments. Um, mm, wow. Okay. And finally, um, helps to curb rising costs. Um, 
through an emphasis on prevention, primary care, and the most effective treatments, um, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute um, is getting funding to do um, comparative effectiveness research um, to look at uh, treatment efficacies um, and uh, to help with coverage decisions. Um, there are also um, the exchanges help foster um, comparison shopping, and um, there is significant, significantly more oversight um, of the health insurance in industry. Um, so premiums at this point now can only vary by a certain number of parameters, geography, family structure, age, um, tobacco use, um, actuar actuarial value. Um, there is also a new 80-20 rule, um, which uh, insurance companies um, were previously not limited in the amount of money that they could spend on health care versus administrative costs. And the levels used to be um, about 40 cents out of every dollar was spent on administration. Um, now um, the insurance companies are required to spend um, 80 to 85 cents, depending on whether it's a, um, a nonprofit or a for-profit insurance company. Um, on healthcare, so um, an increased 20 cents from what they used to spend per dollar um, has to be spent on on healthcare. Um, and if the insurance companies um, exceed that level, then they have to refund it back to the um, the patients. Um, thus far, since 2012, um, the insurance companies have refunded uh, a little over two billion dollars to consumers um, for exceeding those ACA limits. Um, they also uh, have instituted a rate review by the states. So um, previously, insurance companies could raise premiums um, uh, without any, without significant regulation. And now, if um, the company wants to raise the the premium rate above 10%, um, they have to get approval um, by the states individually. Um, that has already limited some um, uh, some premium increases that um, we might have otherwise seen. Um, uh, Connecticut um, rejected a 20% rate hike um, this past year. Um, in 2010, Massachusetts was going to get a 23% rate hike, and they got a 13% rate hike. Um, there was a um, proposal in California in um, 2011 to um, increase premium rates by as much as 87%, um, which was withdrawn after um, it uh, became public. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, um, there are a lot of provisions for um, consumer protections. Um, there is uh, publicly the um, exclusion of pre-existing conditions, um, which was uh, instituted in 2010 for children and um, this past year for adults. Um, it uh, limits lifetime monetary caps and um, uh, limits out-of-pocket expenses to a maximum of um, 5,000 per individual per year and 10,000 per family per year. Um, so um, the uh, prohibition of exclusion of pre-existing conditions, um, we kind of think of that as affecting mostly at the adult population, um, but thus far we've um, seen uh, 17 and a half um, million children that have been able to get insurance um, newly um, because uh, the exemption is, is now there. 
Um, so it has benefited the pediatric population as well. So um, the uh, Affordable Care Act also helps the pediatric cardiology population. Um, this is a picture of Helen Tausig um, of the Blalick Tausig shunt. She was a big player in the development of um, the very first uh, congenital heart repairs. Um, so there are a couple of things that um, are benefiting the pediatric um, cardiology patients in the bill. The first one is the Congenital Heart Futures Act, which creates a database um, in which uh, all congenital heart patients um, are recorded, and they're recorded longitudinally over time um, into adulthood um, so that we can get better data on this kind of like rare disease field um, where in the past it's been difficult to, to get information and to do studies um, because of the uh, infrequency um, of, of the disorders. Um, there's also the, the loan repayment program, which um, applies to pediatrics and all specialties within pediatrics. Um, and with the new adult congenital heart disease population um, kind of growing, um, we don't currently have a good um, subspecialist population that covers them um, because they have congenital heart disease and so therefore should be pediatric patients. But when they are 30 or 40, they have adult problems and so should be cared for by adult physicians. Um, and there are hopes that the loan repayment program will help entice internal medicine trained physicians um, to go into uh, adult congenital heart disease and, um, and thus help absorb um, some of the care of those patients um, with uh, um, another population. So um, that's what's happened so far. Um, this is the breakdown of kind of when things have have progressed. Um, this is a little difficult to see. Um, but basically, in 2010, we had the elimination of pre-existing conditions for children, um, the extension of parental insurance to age 26, lifetime limits, the right to appeal decisions by insurance companies um, for coverage, and um, the elimination of arbitrary cancellations of, of, um, of coverage by insurance companies. Um, in 2011, we had the 80-20 rule. Um, and the rate review rule, both of which has, have helped to, to decrease um, costs. Um, in 2012, we have coverage of new preventative services for women, which is helping to address prenatal care, um, and among other things. Um, and the summary of coverage that um, employers are required to give employees um, when they are uh, on their insurance plans um, every year, which is a standardized form um, that gives uh, all employees information about um, their coverage um, that we haven't had in the past. And last year we had open enrollment for the marketplace. Um, this year there were another set of um, man uh, mandates or provisions that were um, instituted. Um, the first was elimination of pre-existing conditions for adults, um, the individual mandate, um, more savings on healthcare premiums, um, the Medicaid expansion, um, presumptive eligibility, which um, uh, makes the system of enrollment more passive. Um, enrollment in Medicaid and the CHIP program, um, the Child Health Insurance program, has um, famously been very difficult and has been a significant barrier towards um, people getting access to care. And so presumptive eligibility has um, helped uh, decrease some of those barriers. Um, there are also no annual um, caps on the amount of coverage that people can get. Next year, there will be um, increased federal match for the CHIP program um, as um, a uh, incentive to 
to continue the programs for the states. Um, in 2016, there will be healthcare choice compacts, which are like a variation of the exchanges um, where states can create their own choice compact and then um, uh, patients from other states um, can uh, choose to purchase their insurance through the compacts, which will help increase um, uh, competitiveness um, in the insurance marketplace. Um, and finally, um, in 2018, there is a, going to be a tax on high cost insurance. Um, so insurers that provide um, plans that require an aggregate expense for an individual of $10,000 and a family um, paying $27,000 in a year, will um, those insurers will have to pay an, an added tax for their um, plans being exorbitantly expensive. Um, so uh, those are the plans that are in place for the next couple of years. Um, and you know a lot of the initiatives have been um, have been passed, but not kind of fully developed yet. Um, so there's still like a lot of changes that are coming up uh, in the future. Um, there are a lot of shortcomings that are still left. Um, so uh, Medicaid expansion isn't uniform yet. Um, states uh, in June of 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that the mandate was constitutional, but they ruled that um, the original plan to withhold Medicaid patients for all of the population if the state didn't expand to 138% of the federal poverty level was coercive. And so they kept the Medicaid expansion in place, but um, they removed the, um, the um, withholding of Medicaid funds for the other patients. Um, so basically they made Medicaid expansion optional. Um, many states um, have chosen to expand their Medicaid programs, um, but states are still given an option. And um, so there are still states that have chosen not to that are kind of leaving a gap in coverage. Um, locally, um, New Hampshire and Medicaid are and, and Vermont are choosing to do different things. Um, so in this chart, I don't know if you can read that very well, but um, the top rows are um, childless adults middle rows are parents and the bottom rows are children. Um, so for our um, direct populations, um, there's really no change. Um, Medicaid and CHIP cover up to 318% um, of the federal poverty level. Um, from there to 400%, um, parents get tax credits and beyond that is, is unsubsidized. Um, but in New Hampshire, oops, there we go. In New Hampshire, um, there is uh, in orange a coverage gap. Um, so for parents that are um, in states that aren't expanding Medicaid, um, they will have Medicaid up to the point where their state um, stops covering. And then there will be a gap between that point, whatever it is, 80%, 90%, until the, um, the coverage of, for tax credits kicks in at, at 138%. Um, so the government anticipates that all of these people will be covered by Medicaid. Um, and so if they're choosing not to expand, then this population is um, um, falling into the gap. Um, at this point, um, just like all other states, uh, they're getting tax credits for um, uh, being within 138 to 400% of the federal poverty level. Um, but for our population, there is a, going to be a group of parents that will likely continue to be uninsured. Um, 
So um, the Medicaid expansion um, causes problems for individuals, but it also causes problems for um, for insurance, for hospitals. Um, hospitals who are disproportionate share hospitals um, uh, in states that aren't expanding Medicaid are um, potentially going to have problems with funding. Um, so those disproportionate share hospitals get um, a portion of money from the federal government um, for covering a large number of uninsured patients um, for the care that they give that isn't reimbursed by anyone. Um, and so they are decreasing all of those payments nationally because with the mandate, they would anticipate that there would be fewer uninsured people. Um, and so disproportionate share hospitals should need less money um, to cover uninsured people. Um, in states where they're not expending Medicaid, um, the coverage gap will mean that those disproportionate share hospitals will continue to care for those patients, but will get less money from the federal government for doing so. Um, and so that is um, going to be relevant, um, at least uh, in New Hampshire and, um, and here. The penalty um, for not enrolling in the mandate um, is, is difficult to enforce, and we don't have great plans for how that's going to change in the future. Um, it might be difficult for some patients to maintain their physician. Um, so uh, right now, um, when people change jobs frequently, um, they're often able to keep their same um, PCP because they're broad networks um, covered by insurance companies. Um, but as the insurance companies try to um, decrease their costs, they're doing so by often narrowing their coverage and so people who change jobs frequently might find that the coverage um, overlaps that they used to have are now narrower and um, requiring them to change um, physicians on a more frequent basis, um, which is concerning for, for a number of reasons. Um, there has been some question about whether or not there are going to be adequate number of providers to pay for all of or to cover all of these people who are um, getting increased care. Um, the data for that is, is not Great, it's rather equivocal actually, um, whether or not that's gonna be the case. Um, if it does end up um, being the case, uh, likely resources will be um, the nurse practitioners and physician's assistants who are kind of a more agile workforce and can um, change disciplines more easily. Um, there is also a possibility that drug costs will increase in the future. Um, there are, um, mandates for pharmaceutical companies to close the donut hole. And in order to do that, they're um, kind of uh, decreasing those increased costs, or they might decrease those increased costs by um, uh, dispersing it to consumers. And so we might find that um, a couple of years down the road that drug costs start to increase, but whether that will end up being the case um, is, is not certain yet. Um, So there is um, a concern that there might be re reduced reimbursements for some patients that were on the CHIP program that transitioned to Medicaid. Um, so the CHIP program is um, an increased uh, provision for children that are not qualifying for Medicaid but are still, um, still in need of insurance. Um, those happen through private insurance companies, and um, so the reimbursement rates um, for CHIP patients as they transition to Medicaid might end up being lower. Um, 
there's also no help for undocumented immigrants. Um, documented immigrants um, will, uh, after five years, be able to qualify for Medicaid um, and can purchase insurance on the exchanges. Undocumented immigrants are um, will never qualify for Medicaid and are prohibited from purchasing insurance on the exchanges, um, even at full price. Um, and um, we don't have a good method for, for covering those patients um, at this time. So um, why don't we... Uh, why don't we head back to here um, and just um, look at how we did. So um, uh, the first question, um, will the ACA establish a government panel to make decisions about end-of-life care? And everybody did very well. Um, the ACA is not doing that. Um, they were originally going to have reimbursements for physicians who had conversations um, about end-of-life care, and they rescinded those reimbursements um, because of the uproar. And so we might have previously gotten paid for having those conversations, but we're not going to now. Um, <laughs> the ACA will give states the option to expand Medicaid. Um, they um, are not allowing undocumented immigrants to receive aid. Um, they uh, are actually, we're actually not um, cutting any benefits from the traditional Medicare program. Um, in fact, many of the benefits are, are being expanded. Um, and um, there was talk about creating a new government-run health insurance program um, that would be um, placed on the exchanges um, and compared to uh, other private insurance plans. Um, but that was also eliminated. Um, all right, so um, what can we do to help? Um, we've learned a lot, um, and there are still a lot of things left to do. Um, there are a lot of changes that have taken place, but um, there are a lot more to come. So all of these programs have been federally instituted, um, but they are being implemented by the states. And so there's still a lot of um, leeway in terms of what the states are actually going to do in order to implement these changes. Um, and so there's a lot of input that's still needed from, from people um, especially in pediatrics. Um, so um, this is a, a rather critical time to get involved because there are so many changes that are coming up. Um, uh, it can be hard to know where to get started. Um, one good place to look is the AAP website, um, federaladvocacy.aap.org. Um, they have a lot of resources um, to help uh, help you get started. You can sign up for Fan Alerts, which is the Federal Advocacy um, Action Network, um, to learn uh, where your voice might be needed to weigh in on federal bills and um, to sign petitions. Um, you can become an AAP key contact um, to help them uh, kind of develop plans for the future. Um, you can, um, on the national level, um, follow the Vice President of Healthcare Policy on Twitter. Um, her name is Judy Solomon. Um, you can follow her at Judy CBPP, um, which is the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Um, and you know, keep your finger on the pulse of what things are going at, um, going on nationally. Um, monitoring Medicaid expansion in your state um, is something that you can do through those same modalities. Um, you can consider being the pediatrician on the Medicaid um, Medical Advisory Board. Um, it's also important at the state level to um, keep an eye on um, proposed legislation for how to implement those federal mandates. Um, it's important to keep cost sharing down because even if a family can afford their insurance plan, if they have to pay $200 for a copay and $10,000 for 
um, a uh, um, uh, deductible, um, then it doesn't matter whether they have coverage. Um, it's also important to maintain reimbursements because that um, allows uh, people on Medicaid to have greater access to care. Um, as the reimbursement rates go down, the number of providers who accept those patients also go down. Um, and so that can limit it, uh, limit the amount of care that people receive. Um, so you don't have to get involved at the national level. That can be rather daunting. Um, you can get involved at the local or individual level. Um, you can um, write a letter to your editor, share your opinions with the public. Um, you can um, also get on the AEP website and get in touch with um, their media contacts section, which will um, divide uh, contacts by zip code um, to figure out exactly who you should be getting in touch with. Um, you can be a source for those um, uh, media resources for future interviews to um, you know, be the medical person who counters the anti-vaccine or anti-fluoride or anti-whatever movement that um, that's being popular. Um, you can talk to schools about emergency preparedness and um, uh, their responses to um, uh, tragedies in the future, um, local shootings, um, and talk about um, uh, safety plans and developing their safety plans. Um, you can arrange educational meetings um, with the public. Um, there are training modules on the AEP website that um, will give you everything from core concepts to an equipment list to make sure that you have everything that you need when you um, go to these meetings. Um, they are incredibly, incredibly complete. And um, finally, you can apply for local grants. You can get a catch grant if you're a resident. You can do the Healthy Tomorrows program or the Community Pediatrics Training Initiative. There are lots and lots of resources. Um, and I'm running out of time. Um, blah, 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 we're gonna skip all of that. Um, and I think I'm going to just um, stop there. Sorry. participating in the public discourse, I think, is really important. I was listening to something on NPR on a pro and con, and they had a young man who was a journalist saying, oh, he's he's not going to sign up, and he sustained the cost of major medical care for himself because he fell off his bicycle and broke his elbow. And I'm listening to that, and I'm saying, now, if you were actually run over by a car, if you had a child with cancer, 
then you would begin to understand what major medical costs are. He's, he, he, he's putting this out in front of the public mm-hmm. as the end of the world if he was able to survive that by yeah. paying for a broken arm. Yeah, the rates of bankruptcy associated with medical costs yeah. also far surpass any other country, any other country in the world. Um, both as a, as a Canadian and as a policy wonk, um, could you um, comment on single payer plans and whether activism in that regard might be useful? Um, I can tell you my opinion. Um, I have, you know, family and lots of family still in Canada, and some of them are medical providers. Um, they seem very happy with their system. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I personally think it's a great idea, but um, I don't have a lot of data to support that. If you do want to have some data, there are both in both states um, activists who are trying to promote single payer. There's an organization which is belong. I don't require to join by any stretch. I probably joined the maybe a member of Physicians for a National Health Plan, which has and I believe that um, I was struck by the fact that a quarter of this room thought that there was still a public option, which, as some of you know, the single-payer option was not allowed in committee meetings when Sharon Bacchus was chairing the committee that was considering how to build ACA. So the voice never was even heard, and the need for public option was drowned out of the final bill. So I think there is an assumption that the public option or a single-payer can't or won't fly in this country, and I think physicians and healthcare providers are an extremely influential block, especially if those fears that are raised, which is that you won't have physicians because you won't pay them enough and there'll be a mass exodus, can be allayed. I think that you could actually change some of the conversation and discourse in the country. And so um, I will take the prerogative as interim chair to lead the conversation officially at that. <laughs>